when we mix that song, you know, there's always that point when, you know, you're in there with the engineer and they're like, yo, this is the final mix, this is the final mix, you know, this is the mix you're going to send to the label. I said, if that ain't a fucking hit, then I need to quit. Here it comes! Here it comes! You're listening to Fresh Era, where we tell stories of the legends from the golden era of hip-hop. Each episode, we bring you stories from the pioneers themselves as we dive deeper into their lives, their struggles, and what it was like to be a part of the most popular form of music before it was mainstream. I'm your host, Craig Smith. When I think about mainstream hip-hop moments that transport you back in time, I think about live footage of Run DMC and music videos by A Tribe Called Quest, NWA interviews, and even the Obey Your Thirst campaign. But not many things stand out quite like the movies, Juice, Boys in the Hood, and a cultural classic starring today's subject, House Party. That's right, this episode is about Kid from the duo Kid and Play. In the late 80s, Kid and Play hopped on the scene with a hit album, followed by a hit movie, and even a cartoon. This success lasted several movies and albums, cementing Kid and Play in the culture. But it wasn't without some failures, tragedy, and drama. Kid's road to hip-hop fame is a unique tale of finding identity, gathering people, and finding ways to keep the party going. Okay, my name is Christopher Reed. I've come to be known as Kid. I was born in the Bronx, BX. My mom's was Irish and my father was Jamaican. I was born in 1964. Just the time to have an interracial baby. You know, young white girl, you know, smooth-ass Jamaican motherfucker. You know what I mean? And for Kid's mom, having a baby with a black man came with consequences. You know, her parents threw her out. So it was just she and him. The thing about my my mother was, she was literally one of the first cool white chicks. You know, like I said, she's in the 60s. We're living in New York City. We're living in the Bronx, but we're all over. She's a social worker. She had been a school teacher prior to that. Had lots of friends. Everybody wanted to be with her. I mean, but the black people, the Latinos, you know, gay people. You know, we were in the village all the time. And like I said, it was me and her. So, you know, she let me run all up and down the house like a nut, playing the radio, AM radio, and singing all the songs. And back then, the radio was varied as well. You know, you could hear a Smokey Robinson song. And then, you know, wah! Yeah! I'm saying? And then you hear, like, you know, on top of the world, looking down on creation. You know, a wide variety. It was me and my mom. Uh, you know, I would see my dad, like, you know, weekends, every other weekend kind of deal. My mother unexpectedly passed away at nine. And so now, gotta go to the dad. You know, this is a, I went from a doting mother to a, like a hardcore dad, <laughs> you know, old school and shit. That's when my world literally changed from white to black. <laughs> Gone was the village, the diverse environments, and the tenderness of his mother. Moving with his dad shifted his entire perspective. My father had the grand idea of moving us to Staten Island. You know, he wanted to try to get us a nice place, you know what I mean? A little land, whatever, whatever. But shh, them white folks wasn't having it. It was That was tough. That was like a tough three, four years. Middle school was tough. This mixed kid and his Jamaican father moved to a predominantly white part of New York that wasn't friendly to anyone who wasn't like them. Identity wasn't going to be easy for kid to navigate. Back then, you you had to pick a side, or they'll pick a side for you. So when you know those tough years in in um, Staten Island, you know if you if you a little bit black, you black, 
and, and so they won't accept you. And finding a home with the white side of his identity was also rendered impossible by his own family. My my mother's family, you know, she passed away. My mother's family, they wasn't trying to mess with me, no way. They were still reeling off the fact that she had a kid by a black dude. <laughs> Shit. But that didn't mean he was without love and family. I remember the black people that I came in contact with, and particularly my family, they were just like, come, man, come. Come, you little bright boy. Come here. You go where you feel wanted. With this acceptance came full immersion, and this extended everywhere from the way he was treated to the sounds in his home. When I started living with my dad, um, not that I stopped listening to all the varied stuff, I, I did, but there was a whole lot more reggae music, you know, came into the <laughs> came into the house and stuff. My family was all Jamaicans now. The Caribbean flavor was great because, um, you know, it was varied as well within that within that format. So, you know, you could have this um-tempo stuff. You could have, you know, get your conscious Bob Marley stuff. Uh, you can get your, you know, this, you can get your party vibe off in that. He was integrating and becoming a part of the culture. You know, the only thing that was tough was when, when I when I first got down with the with the Jamaican squad, you know, I had to I had to learn how to understand them. You know, it was like it was almost like learning a new language, especially when they would send they would send me to to Jamaica for like the summer, and so you you around some really 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 Jamaican people, but it was fun. You know what I mean? They would laugh. They'd laugh at me because they'd be talking to what? And I'm like, yep. Well, there you go. And they're like, what? What? Don't even understand. I talk both. I was like, yeah. Eventually, he and his father moved off Staten Island back to Queens. For a kid in the '70s, New York was a busy place, but it was an exciting place to learn. Man, I was taking the trains when I was like 11, 12, but it was it was commonplace in New York. Yeah, New New York was a great place to grow up because you know you was. There was a test every day in some form or fashion. That neighborhood in Queens was a middle-class black neighborhood, East Elmhurst, Queens. So, you know, uh, you just hear that kind of music in the neighborhood. You hear Caribbean music. You hear R&B music. Um, This is like, you know, literally before hip-hop existed. So as it was getting ready to evolve, so... This pre-hip-hop environment was just normal life for everyone in the neighborhood. At that time, he was around some future hip-hop legends. But to him, they were just friends from Queens. Eric B. Eric B. and Rakim. Me and Eric B. and a nice big plate of He drove the ice cream truck in our neighborhood. He was our homeboy. We would jump on the truck and, you know, make our own Sundays and jump the hell off. All this and that. G-Rap was there. DJ Polo, uh, Freddie Fox, and Salt and Pepper weren't from that neighborhood. But because uh, they were dealing with Herbie Lovebug and as their career started jumping off, they spent a lot of time in our neighborhood. So it was there was a lot of activity going on. It was a very active neighborhood. And for a young kid who didn't necessarily fit in, he was trying whatever it would take in order to make friends. I was, I was desperate. I was so glad to be on Staten Island. I was like, <laughs> I just got to the neighborhood and I'm, you know, I'm just, I'm trying to make friends. I'm just trying to get involved. You know, I'm, I'm dabbling in some hip hop. I, you know, I'm feeling it. Sitting on the front steps with a speaker, just listening to music, just, you know. <laughs> and that's how I, you know, I mean, the guy will come by and say, hey man, what's, hey, what's going on? You know, I make friends that way. So once again, music has always been like that, um, an ally. You know, a liaison or intermediary 
in terms of meeting people, interacting with people. And this would pay off as hip-hop started to become a mainstay in his neighborhood. DJs would set up equipment at community centers and throw parties, also called jams. Um, we, you know, they would do like a lot of local jams in, in, in our, uh, either at the park or um, at community centers. You know, I would go to some of these community centers, these jams, and and kind of offer up my services. Be like, yo, can I, you know, can I get on the mic? Can I get on the mic? And it was at one of these jams where he was showcasing his skills that he would meet his future partner in rhyme, play. Him and his other homeboy, ours, came in. The music is jamming. And then they hear, they hear there's somebody on the microphone, the dude's, you know, the voice is just kicking in. And they're like, yo, yo, let's go up to the DJ and see who's on the mic. So they make their way through the crowd and get up to the DJ. And they look at me, crazy Angela Davis afro, thick glasses. I don't know what race he is. <laughs> and they, look, they was like, this dude is on the mic. This dude. <laughs> Couldn't believe it. You look crazy as fuck. But man, you can run, man. <laughs> we can fix that. <laughs> It seemed like Kid had found his tribe. He made it off Staten Island, and now he was in Queens, surrounded by hip-hop. He got together with some friends and started to perform routines all around the city. He was gaining all the experience that he would need for his future in hip-hop, but he didn't know that this was going to be his career yet. He also didn't know that he would tour the world with his best friend and they would go on to star in films. This wouldn't come without their fair share of trial and error and a little bit of rap beef. When we come back, Kid and Play become an official rap group. Then later, they go on to star in a few cult classic movies. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Little Giants, Giant Shorties. I've got a few kids living in my house and I can tell you, their energy is something you can't suppress. When it comes to expressing themselves, you've got to let them shine. They are the culture, so why not let them dress like it? Shopping WeAreLittleGiants.com gives you access to plenty of options for styling your little shorty with the same authenticity you reserve for yourself. Find t-shirts, hoodies, shoes, onesies, and much more. Honestly, you'll be jealous they don't have your size. WeAreLittleGiants.com has designs that speak to the love we've had for hip-hop since we were kids ourselves. You'll be passing along your passion for the culture when you see your little giant rocking this most definitely t-shirt I'm about to cop for my son or this notorious RBG hoodie for my daughter. Slide through. Literally slide down the spiral slide and land in their flagship store ball pit at 4675 Hollywood Boulevard. Peace. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. 
Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome back. Kid had faced tragedy at an early age when he lost his mother. His world shifted drastically as he went to go stay with his Jamaican father in Staten Island, a place that wasn't too friendly to outsiders. Then they moved to Queens. And at this point in our story, he's just getting involved in hip hop with one of his friends from around the way, Play. You know, he was always like super fresh. You know, his gear was fresh. He always had a fresh cut. You know, there was always activity around him and his friends. I was like, man, you know, I'm sitting there with these Coke bottles on and <laughs> looking like, but you know, we, we, before I got down with everybody, you know, I was just real observant. And his environment was observing him and they let him know. Like I said, my neighborhood, it was a great place to grow up because once people got to know you, they accepted you. You know, now they still make fun of you. You know what I mean? But, you know, that was that was, that was was a thing. You know, that was almost like a, um, a way of uh, integrating you. That's another thing that kind of forces you to be sharp. And he had to be sharp in order to do what he was going to do next. He and his friends from Queens got together and started to create routines, battling other crews. You know, we were crazy enough to go from Queens to, up to Harlem, Harlem World, and participate in those battles. You know, we didn't realize that those things were rigged. Everybody put in $25 or whatever. It'd be like 15, 20 groups and stuff. And um, we did that a few times, but it always seemed like, man, the same dudes always win. These same dudes from Harlem always win. Like, initially, you know, Play and I, though we were friends, we were in two different competing hip hop groups. I was in a group called the Turnout Brothers. He was in a group called the Super Lovers. You know, we were all friends, but we were always trying to, you know, bust each other's ass. You know what I'm saying? And they were all trying to stand out with the routines, the looks, and the names. When you were coming up with your MC name, you almost had to, like, give yourself a title. You had to make yourself bigger than what you actually were. You know, my nickname at the time was Cool Out. I don't even know. I don't even remember how that started. But everybody, everybody would call me Cool Out. But when, when it came to my MC name, I couldn't just be Cool Out. I need to be the kid Cool Out, you know, and play. His original name was Playboy. Playboy Mr. C. And then that's what made it crazy because ultimately Kid Cool Out and Playboy became Kid and Play. You know, we had a respectful kind of rivalry friendship. But little by little, all the other people, the people in his group, the people in my group, you know, their attentions turned elsewhere. They, you know, they didn't see a career in it. You know, they were going about, you know, living their lives. And literally, you know, the last two people that were standing were were playing myself. So naturally, they decided. I mean, we, you know, we be together every day anyway. You know, you know, me and you should do something. We, we should do something together. They got together as kid and play and went around New York performing. They were making a name for themselves, but remember, hip-hop wasn't a career. So in the meantime, they still had to make money. They found themselves working at a local Sears. We all worked there at one time. I think play was first. Then it was me. Then it was Herbie. Then it was Cheryl and Sandy, which is salt and pepper. And then Martin, that's Martin Lawrence, worked across the street at the gas station and eventually came to work at Sears. We all knew that it was this was not for us. We all hated the job. Man, can, man, I can't wait to get out of here, man, so we can go to the club. We were hanging out. We were young. We all eventually got fired or left. And as he was moving on with his life, he and Play got a record deal with Sutra Records. Sutra Records was known for the Fat Boys, and the Fat Boys was... 
was pretty big time at the time. And at this point, Kid and Play was known as the Fresh Force crew. And they had a formula for how they wanted to get on. The vibe of getting on, you know, 86, 87, those years. A lot of people got on by making um, basically like hip-hop cover records or respond to a hip-hop record. You know, that's how Salt and Pepper got on. Like one of the early records we did on Sutra um, that Rock Me Amadeus was out. And we took it and, and we did it, a joint called Rock Me. Then another record we had, My Adidas was out. My Adidas. But we made a record with the same beat. Talking about girls, talking about she's a skeezer. Cause every time I rock, always waiting backstage to clock my top. My girlfriend may score me, my friends try to warn me. Before I know it, she's got her hands on me. And it bears repeating that hip hop wasn't a career at this point. While Kid was making records, he was also in school. You both went to college too, right? Yeah, um, I graduated from uh, Lehman College, Herbert H. Lehman College in New York. I was. Um, I had a bachelor's in uh, English. Uh, I was an English major. He had a backup plan just in case music didn't pan out. And when they released those songs on Sutra Records, it looked like it might not. But Kid and Play were determined to keep going. We just released a couple of singles with Sutra. You know, it just did I. We got off that label, and um, that's when Herbie, Herbie Lovebug, he had already started blowing up Salt and Pepper. And they already had a relationship with Herbie. Herbie was in the group with Play. He was in the Super Lovers. Um, after we after we flamed out at Sutra. They were looking for a way to keep going, but they needed help. Somebody got to have the vision. You could have 10, 20, 30 people with all the talent in the world. But if they're not in the right direction, if they're not working together, if there's not somebody with the vision, it ain't going to work. And Herbie had the vision. He had the vision and he also had the ear. Kid and Play, formerly known as the Fresh Force Crew, started knocking on Herbie's door. You know what I'm saying? Can we, you know what I'm saying? Can we be down? Well, you know, you hot as you hot. You know, we we think we could be hot, blah, blah, blah. He was like, yeah, you know what I'm saying? Like, whatever, whatever. He was in front of us the whole time. And Herbie Love Bug was just the addition they needed. He came with the sounds and the contacts. We want to work to keep working together, but we want to work with Herbie as well. So by 87... And with some help from Herbie Lovebug... We were assigned to um, select records. And gone was the Fresh Force crew. Now they were Kid and Play. Once we once we became Kid and Play, we knew we had a, a great, solid producer in Herbie Lovebug. That's when we could really go about being ourselves. What's Kid and Play about? They two, you know, they two homeboys, you know, trying to, you know, go out, have a good time, talk to some girls, whoop-de-whoop, dance look fresh. And they put all of that in their music. Our first record as Kid and Play was a song called Last Night. And Last Night is basically a, a song I wrote about a, me and Play going on a double date in New York City. Because that's what we used to do. Last night, I was on the phone. My girl was telling me she was all alone. So I asked her if she was down to go to Union Square. Check out the show. So that's when we start to establish our own identity. Those Sutra records... You know, we didn't know a lot back then, and we were just you know, trying to get on doing what everybody else was doing. Once we stopped doing them and started doing us, 
things went a lot better for us. And then, you know, that that inspires you to keep going. Like, yeah, man, let's just keep let's just keep doing us. And doing them would pay off in historic fashion. They brought their charisma, their chemistry as a duo, their good times, their fashion, their lyrics, Herbie's music, and their dance moves. But this is something that Kid had to get adjusted to along the way. When I was real young, I couldn't dance at all. You know, going to like junior high school dances and stuff gave me anxiety. But as Play and I start putting our thing together, like, we, you know, we kind of looked at what was out there and we're like, what, what could we be? Or who, who should we emulate? And one of the great groups that we loved was Houdini. Two guys, great records, beats banging, and the girls loved them. Had their own style, two real different kind of dudes or whatever. We could be Houdini Plus because them dudes, they didn't dance. And while we're on the topic of standing out, we got to talk about the high top fade. You know, a lot of people were getting fades at that time. And my fade, even when it was low and it was getting higher, people were reacting to it. There's a lot of groups out there. It's very competitive. We So I'm thinking, yo, we need anything we can to stand out. So if us dancing and looking fly and my crazy hairstyle and crazy looking face, if that can get you to pay attention to us, that's what I'm going to do. So, so Kid and Play were down to do whatever it took. They wanted to be great, but they also needed everybody to know it. And who can blame them? At this point in hip-hop history, it was the Wild West. Nobody had any real idea of what would make anyone successful. All that they knew is that they had to be themselves. And luckily, they had support from Herbie Lovebug and Select Records. And eventually, they would come to learn that they had a lot of support from the hip-hop community. When we come back, Kid and Play gets a taste of success. Then, they hit the big screen not once, not twice, but on many more occasions. Then, Kid and Play learned that they have beef with a certain Miami-based rapper. And Kid has to confront the fact that he might be in over his head. Stay tuned. Yo, what's the deal? You got the black sheep, D-R-E-S. Yes, and I want y'all to know right here, right now, stupid-fly.com is the place to be. Yo, you got hats. You got t-shirts and all kind of flyness that you can get your hands on. Not only that, you can check out some of the flyest podcasts you've ever heard in your life. And that would be Stupid Fly Media on Instagram and Facebook. Why? Because they stupid fly. All right. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome back. It's 1987, 
And after their first attempt to make it big in hip-hop by following somebody else's playbook, Kid and Play start to gain momentum working with their friend, the producer, Herbie Lovebug. They were working on songs that will become their first album, Too Hype. And somewhere along the way, Herbie Lovebug gets a spark of inspiration. Herbie, um, Herbie had a, a fascination with go-go music at the time. And he had a big record with salt and pepper that had the go-go vibe in it. It was called Shake Your Thing. He was born a dance floor, shake it, I think, to a funky beat with a go-go swing. Herbie, being the brilliant producer that he was, he said, you know what? I just need a... Just that, the percussion. That's what go-go was about. And I knew he wanted to do a kind of quasi-go-go record on us. I'm the, I'm the songwriter guy. I'm, I'm doing the hook. And there was an old R&B song out. I don't know what it is. But it sure is funky. And this is the hook they had. I knew Herbie was going to do a go-go beat. I said, but I want to change the hook. I want to take the hook. So it's... Rolling, rolling, roll. We're kidding, play now. When we mix that song, you know, there's always that point when, you know, you're in there with the engineer and they're like, yo, this is the final mix, this is the final mix. You know, this is the mix you're going to send to the label. I said, if that ain't a fucking hit, then I need to quit because I was never surer of anything in my life. I said, that's got to be a hit. They believed in the song so much that it became track one on their album, Too Hype. They released the singles Last Night, Do This My Way, and Getting Funky. And in October of 1988, their album Too Hype was released. This album was an immediate success. Number 30 on the Black Album charts. We're this week, it. We are so happy. The hair is high and we're having a lot of fun. And that's, that's, that's yeah. the main thing. And when they finally released Rolling With Kid and Play, it became their signature song. They had fans singing the hook everywhere, including the Apollo. The world was getting to know Kid and Play as the fun-loving rap duo who kept the party going. They were sticking to the plan, being themselves, looking fly, making good music, and dancing. <laughs> so that's your own dance there, right? Called the Kid and Play? Kid and Play Kickstep is on the album. Do the Kid and Play Kickstep. And one of the many cuts on the album, Too Hype. By now, everybody knows the Kid and Play dance. And if you don't, go to YouTube right now and look it up. I'll wait. Nah, I'm just kidding. The success of their album, Too Hype, not only put them on the map, it changed the conversation. They made a hit record, and their album was certified gold. But people were starting to see Kid and Play as more than just rappers. There were personalities that represented the culture. There were people out there who saw that and knew just how to bring these personalities to market. You know, I was I was out and about hanging out. You know, I always hung out at the clubs um, more than Play did at the time. I would run into this this cat, Reggie Hudlin. He's seen some of our music videos and he wanted to direct them. At that time, he was just, he was a music video director. But then one time he comes to me in the club and he says, yo, I wrote a movie and I want you guys to be in it. I want you guys to be the star of it. I want you to read it, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, cool. You know, I had read some movie scripts that people had submitted, you know, so I would read it. And, mo and honestly, most of the stuff that I would read, I would hate. I was like, nah, this is whack. We don't want to do that. 
So they give me this uh, house party script, and I read it. And I'm like, you know what? I said, this is probably, the out of all the things that had been submitted, um, I thought this was the best. It wasn't 100%, but I felt like, yo, this is like, you know, this is like 70, 75%. And I told Herbie and I told Play, I think we can get it the rest of the way there. So we told him, yo, we're interested in doing it. The Hudlins, uh, his brother Warrington was producing, they wanted us to come meet with the executives from New Line Cinema. You know, New Line wasn't New Line. It was just one little office. All he was doing was uh, Freddy Krueger movies at that time. You know, and they had made some money with that. But but there wasn't New Line, New Line, that but what it became. So they went to meet with the New Line executives multiple times. There were screen tests and read-throughs. These executives weren't hip-hop fans, so they were basically trying to see if Kid and Play would be successful on the big screen. So I remember one time we, we did it and we left, and um, I, you know, I, I had a bad feeling. I was just like, eh, man, I don't, I don't think they... I don't think they was feeling us. I don't know. You know, I don't know. I, I didn't, you know, I just didn't like it. I said, man, I don't think, I don't think we're going to do this movie. And then one of the, one of the executives there, one of the people like, hey, man, you know, I, you know, I'll walk you guys down, man. I'll walk you guys downstairs. So we getting out of there. And this is right like when school's letting out. So it's like, you know, it's like 3, 3.15, something like that. School's letting out. There's a big ass high school right down the block from this office on 14th Street. When me, me and Play, when we come outside, you know, with our with our manager and uh, you know Reggie and them and and the new line exec, and these kids all over the place, and they catch us, they see us, they go buck wild. Like I'm saying, we were we were super hot right then. They like, man, man, you'd have thought the Beatles got back together, okay? They was going off, and so the new line guy is like, oh, dip. like this is easy. it just put a whole different, you know, flip on it. You know, he came back like, yo, you know what I'm saying? We need to fuck with these dudes because you didn't you didn't see what I just saw. This changed the conversation and made the decision to cast Kid and Play very easy. They gave him the green light. Like, holy shit. Like, I guess, I guess we're doing a movie. So throughout 1989, they shot the movie House Party. It hit theaters in March of 1990. There's a party tonight at Peter's house. Can I go? It's a weird one on our way to the house party. And the reception was huge, breaking in an estimated $26 million at the box office. And the success didn't stop there. They also released their sophomore album, Fun House. And for the second time in just a few short years, they released another gold album, selling over 500,000 copies. The success was far from slowing down. At this point, they were on world tours. They had a movie out. After the, the success of House Party, everybody was knocking. And at some point, they were approached to do a kid and play cartoon. Yo, it's hard to say, kid, but I think he's doing a Roger Rabbit. Man, I sure hope Play gets a date with Marika this time. He'll be teed off again for days if she says no. You know, our characters and the way we looked they lent themselves to cartoons and, and uh, comic books. We were thrilled to death. I mean, we're, you know, we're Saturday morning cartoon dudes. We were the first rappers to have a cartoon series. And with this unreal amount of success, he wanted to share it with his father. I, I had a little bit of money, and um, I wanted to buy him this car. So I called him up, and I told him to come with me. Could he please come with me? Because I'm going to buy a car, and you know, I want you to come with me so you know I can get a good deal so the guy doesn't take advantage of me. You know, so, you know, my father's like, yes, I need to come there because you don't know what you're doing. And I was like, okay, all right. So he comes with me to the dealership. And then at some point I was like, you know what? I'm not going to buy a car today. So I said, Dad, pick out a car. I'm going to buy you a car today. And he looked at me and said, you're serious? <laughs> I said, yeah. 
I said, yeah, man. <laughs> Got him a light blue Maxima. That's what he wanted. He tells the salesman, I want this, I want that sunroof, and I want all this. <laughs> and the salesman looking at me like, look, I said, I said, whatever he wants. Cash money that day. I said, nobody ever going to come back and take this car from me. Kid was on a rocket ship to success that didn't show any signs of slowing down, especially as they were gearing up for their third album, Face the Nation. And New Line Cinema was so pleased with House Party. They want to do another House Party. So they began work on House Party 2. It's the slamminest party ever. House Party 2. House Party 2 and their third album, Face the Nation, came out in 1991, both assisted by their new hit single, Ain't Gonna Hurt Nobody. Man, I'm gonna have fun. And just as before, the movie and the album saw success. But this album features something that you don't really think about when you talk about Kid and Play. Rap beef. And rap beef with none other than two live crews, Luke. So the story goes, there was a show called Teen Summit that premiered on BET in the 90s. Salt and Pepper appeared on the show and they answered questions about two live crew. Luke didn't really like what they had to say, and he really didn't like the kid and play were in the background, co-signing everything that Salt and Pepper was saying. So Luke decided to air out his frustrations on a record. It was basically they was playing this beat and he was just talking. Like, he wasn't even rhyming. He was just talking, like, giving his opinion. Ah, this dude, that dude, this motherfucker, that motherfucker. I ain't bullshitting. And at one point in that record, he, he mentions, I think he I think he made mention of Salt and Pepper, da, 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 but then he says something about us, like... And uh, it got kids in that other motherfucker play said something that really offended us, really offended me. And I was like, yo, we need to we need to address that. So Kid decides to address it on a record. It was extraordinary P-Rock. He produced it. It was called Next Question. And I tried to make it like a press conference. Now let me pull another man's card from the land where the bass hits hard. Miami, where he and his bums rap. Wearing a scarf is looking like a dunce cap. Last year's disc didn't amount to much. You swung first, now here's a counterpunch. The only way you get attention on your records is because you talk dirty and your dancers are half-naked. And then they had another record they came out with after that. Pussy ass kid and hoe ass play. Some motherfuckers get real. I got a heart like gold and a dick like steel. You want a disc punk, please? You got a flat top thicker than commodity cheese. I was like, man, we need to squash this beef. I ain't got nothing for this. I was like, we don't even curse. Like, what the fuck? How am I supposed to answer pussy ass kid and hoe ass play? Play didn't give a fuck. He was like, you shouldn't say something in the first place. Rap beef aside, after the success of House Party 2 and their third album, Face the Nation, Kid and Play was still on fire. In 1992, they released the movie Class Act. I was an excellent student with a bright future. Oh, yeah, well, I was the dopest brother on the block. Cell Block 9. That was before I met you. And they're a class act. Then in 1993, they starred in a made-for-TV movie called Bodyguard. I searched high and low for this movie, a trailer, something, but I couldn't find anything. All I know is, eventually, New Line Cinema reached back out to Kid and Play for 1994's House Party 3. House Party 3. After the release of House Party 3, 
kid would go on to be a cultural mainstay with guest appearances on multiple hit TV shows, continuing to tour around the world. In the movie franchise that they started, House Party would go on to have several sequels. These days, you can catch Kid around Hollywood pursuing his passion for stand-up comedy. This kid who faced tragedy early on and had trouble finding his place in the world ended up being a pillar in hip-hop, a beacon of hard work and determination that represents not just the music, the dancing, the movies, or the tours, but acceptance and friendship. Era is a Stupid Fly production, written and edited by me, Craig Smith, and polished by the one and only DJ Cheap Shot. Chris Barnett is simply that guy. Music by The Math Club. Sean Berman is our mix engineer. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. Follow this show on Instagram at Fresh Era Podcast. And check out our website, stupid-fly.com, where you can find a host of Stupid Fly merchandise. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next episode of Fresh Era.